Hello, Chris Evans here with a special edition of the Best of the Breakfast Show podcast with Sky from Virgin Radio, featuring journalist, writer and guru Oliver Berkman. Oliver made time stand still when he walked us through his extraordinary new book, 4,000 Weeks, Time and How to Use It. It's an amazing chat. I love talking to him. Here we go. Over to you, Bax. What if you stopped trying to do everything so you could finally get round to doing what counts? Our next guest draws on modern and ancient philosophies as he mildly terrifies us with how little time we're here for. His new book, 4,000 Weeks, Time and How to Use It, is out now. So, hi, time. We made time for the very timely Oliver Berkman. Good morning, Oliver. Good morning. And welcome to Guru Tuesday. You are our time guru for today. How does that feel? A little bit alarming. I'll yeah. do my best. Okay. Well, I've heard you before on, on other stuff uh, longer than this is going to be, and you're amazing. This book is fantastic, Oliver. Thank you so much for writing. You wrote it for yourself, didn't you? Oh, totally. I'm really glad that you liked it, but it was absolutely an act of uh, self-therapy at, at the same time as well. Yeah, definitely. All right. So it is fun to compartmentalise time. It can be fun. It can be really frightening, but it can be ultimately very useful. How much fun did you have compartmentalising time? And tell us the different genres that you had fun playing with. Well, I mean, look, the title of this book, 4,000 Weeks, is just that's the amount of time that you get in weeks if you live to be sort of in your late 70s, uh, uh, 80 or so. Um, and I just think that expressing it in weeks, I mean, I hope it's not so alarming that people don't want to hear more from me, but it is alarming <laughs> in a way that like really sharpens the brings things into focus you know i don't know why expressing it in weeks has that effect but i basically had a panic attack when i first did the calculation so yeah um, well i went one further i then did mine in months i'm 391 months in counting <laughs> which is not long at all is it really and then if you if you go on from that and you look at your 4,000 weeks and i've got 1,700 and something left if i'm lucky or 1,500 i can't remember and then you think well hang on a minute but lots of those are work weeks so they don't really so we'll cross those off and then you get <laughs> Um, some holidays and you think well three weeks a year for let's say um, another 25 years that's I've got 75 weeks holiday actual holiday left so you start thinking about that that more you know you comes into focus more and then you Rachel was saying that her hubby Alex did an Edinburgh show called seven years in the bathroom because that's how long we spend in the bathroom um, I suppose and the, the whole thrust of your book is in the end we plan we over plan for future time too much as opposed to just enjoying what little time we have in the moment yeah that's it I mean I'm actually not trying to suggest that people go through the rest of their lives in a sort of white knuckle, desperate attempt to seize every minute and go base jumping every weekend or whatever. You know, I think it is much more about seeing that we have this finite little portion of time and you can, that's enough to do a lot of amazing things, but it's not enough to do everything. And I think when we try to, to a lot of the advice that people get on how to manage time better, how to be more efficient, it's all based on this idea that we could somehow fit everything in if we only found the right techniques and were a bit more self-disciplined. So it's more about like giving up that impossible quest but in order to have the time and focus and attention to do a few things that you that you really care about right every sentence is riven with gold in this book let me tell you people listening the book once again is called four thousand weeks time and how to use it like for example uh here we go i've highlighted this on page 32 um, the more you try to manage your time with the goal of achieving a feeling of total control and freedom from the inevitable constraints of being human, the more stressful, empty and frustrating life gets. It's all about this future because in the future we have all the time in the world, don't we? But it just doesn't end up panning out like that. 
Right. It's like in your mind, when you're planning your future life, you can include things that are not actually compatible. You can include being in a full time, incredibly attentive parent, launching five businesses and spending all your life on meditation retreats up a mountain. But obviously, in reality, you're going to have to make choices between those things, even if they're all good. Right. It's not just about getting rid of the boring stuff in life. I think it's about deciding that some things that would have been great to do, you're not going to get to do because you've decided something else is, is even more important. Real freedom, you say, sometimes is to be found not in achieving greater sovereignty over your own schedule, but in allowing yourself to be constrained by the rhythms of community. And, and you know, in order for that to happen, we have to be present. And one of the ways we can be present in the here and the now is by not worrying about the then and the not now. Yeah, I think that, you know, and this is, again, it's totally a problem that I've suffered from for years. I'm not just lecturing from any perfect position, but this we totally get so fixated on like using our time well for future purposes, for financial security, for job prospects, for raising good kids, whatever it is. But it, you, your focus is totally on the future. So there's no focus left for where you actually are now. But of course, the future never arrives. And when the future comes the new future is still in the future. And so there's this phenomenon where you're, you're never quite there. And then one day it all runs out, which seems like a depressing way to, to go about life. Really, yeah, but it's, it's, but it's also very realistic um, to, to look at it that way. And also, therefore, ultimately, the most useful way to look at it. And you talk about, you know, the workaholic or, or you know, in, the workaholic in a capitalist society who, who can't leave things alone, who has a cat. And what the problem here is that he can't love his cat because what he has to because his cat is here and now and why would he love that because he's got to invest in his future cat so what he really wants to love or claims to love or is obsessed with loving instead is his cat's kittens oh but that's not enough because his <laughs> cat's kittens what you know they will become cats and they will be the they will be the present so he's got to love his cat's kittens kittens and his kit, cat's kittens 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 and it never <laughs> stops does it Right. And thank you to John Maynard Keynes for that specific example. I think what that is so what that shows and what he was using it to show is that, like, you get a payoff for thinking in those terms. It sort of makes you feel immortal in a way. It makes you feel like your your concerns go off and off and off into the future forever. And it's really uncomfortable to realize that they don't and that you better, therefore, do something enjoyable or meaningful right now if you're ever going to do it. That's kind of that makes people feel anxious and antsy i think but i think it's worth getting through that because then you actually get to yeah love a cat uh, right now in the present. <laughs> exactly. as, as and, it, and if you've got a cat why wouldn't you love it or what's the point <laughs> in you getting the cat in the first place um you know on a, in a similar vein i think that people who are trying to protect their time are paranoid about their time being stolen end up stealing it themselves and you allude to this because you say you know commitment phobes commitment phobes are such because they want to protect their time they don't want it, anybody else to take it away from them um you know is it selfish or not we've all done it doesn't matter i don't think that's that's the case but if you do if you if if you counterthink that and you commit instead to certain situations which take up swathes of your life, what they actually do is they relieve you from the burden of having to think about it, which is like committing in the first place. For example, marriage. Yeah, totally. I think that, you know, I definitely have a history in my earlier adulthood of commitment phobia. And what you're doing is you're feeling like you're keeping your options open. You're feeling like you're in control. But the price you pay for that is that you're never really getting the full benefits of, of being in a committed relationship. It could be a job, could be a lots of other things. And the moment you've made that commitment and you can't realistically back out, obviously you can back out in, 
in practice from lots of things, including marriages. But but when you when it's sort of a lot harder to do, it's really liberating because you're not sort of tormented by this. Like, oh, should I be doing something different? No, you just go ahead and make the best of moving forwards into the future. And I think that is. Yeah. I mean, and they've done studies on this as well. It's not just a sort of anecdote that people people are much more stressed about choices where they have an option to back out of those choices than the ones where where they don't. My favorite quote about that, all it's not in your book, but I'm sure you've read it yourself, is that if you keep your if you become obsessed with keeping your options open, in the end, ultimately all you're left with is options. <laughs> yeah, that's great. No, it's that's exactly great, right. isn't it? It's so cool. <laughs> all right, why should we stop clearing the decks? Page forty eight. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, this is something I really discovered over years of being what I call a productivity geek, you know, just completely obsessed with new efficiency techniques and ways to get through all my email and ways to get through all my tasks. It doesn't work because actually the process of getting through those tasks generates more tasks. And if you get really good at answering email, I can speak from experience, um, what happens is you get tons more email because your replies generate replies and those replies need replies and it, and it goes on forever to the end of time. Um, so if you get into work in the morning, say, and decide that you're going to get all the little stuff out of the way before you turn to the thing that really matters, it'll never happen or it'll very rarely happen because that process of trying to clear the decks, it, it, you're trying to get through an infinite amount of stuff and a sort of endlessly replenishing amount of stuff. So if you get more efficient at doing that, it's like, you know, it's like getting more efficient at climbing up a, an infinitely tall ladder. You get more rushed and stressed, but you're never going to get to the top because it's because it's literally endless. It's funny, isn't it? Because pyramid building works and is, is you know, is, is morally um, the way to go as far as community is concerned, you know, and um, fairness is concerned. But top down thinking really is the way to go when it comes to priorities, because that's, it's about the rocks in the jar. Do you want to speak to that for a second? Oh, well, I get really annoyed by this parable. It's in like every other time management book. And it's this whole story. I probably won't go through the whole thing right now. But the basic idea is, you know, if you prioritize your most important stuff first, it's like putting the big rocks into a jam jar first and then followed by the pebbles in the sand in this analogy. Point is, do the things that matter first and then you'll find time for everything. And what I sort of argue here is the problem is with how we're living today is that there are just too many rocks to fit into the jar. It's not about how you exactly organize things. There are just too many things in most people's lives that feel like they really matter and that you really should be doing in your work, in your family responsibilities, staying fit, eating healthy, whatever. And so we're going to have to make some choices. We're just going to have to say, OK, like not everything that really feels like it matters is going to get done. But that's actually really liberating because once you've sort of accepted that part, you're no longer in this mad struggle to do the impossible, to make like two plus two add up to five. Um, and, you know, you beat yourself up less for doing something that no human was ever going to be able to, to do in the first place. And commerce is, de commerce rather, is desperate for us to deal in the future because without us dealing in the future or, you know, engaging in the future, they wouldn't sell... 99% of the things to us that we don't need that they do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Because there's no, you don't want your consumers to be completely satisfied because then they just buy one thing and that's it. So um, honestly, it's the same with uh, a lot of self-help books, I think. You don't want to, you, do, you, you don't want to be in a position of having found the thing that you need to get on with your life completely because then, uh, you know, then you're not a good consumer for, for further updates to it. 
You talk about the pitfalls of convenience and um, you tag onto that. Um, it works like this. In startup jargon, the way to make a fortune in Silicon Valley is to identify a pain point, one of the small annoyances resulting from more jargon, the friction of daily life, and then to offer a way to circumvent it. Um, and it's the Silicon Valley obsession with nullifying our pain points. Um, <laughs> they'll always find pain to remind us of, even if it isn't really that painful or maybe doesn't even exist so that they can fix it aren't they yeah no absolutely and then you lose something that you didn't really sign up to losing so one sort of little example <laughs> is um one little example is like you know you can order food it, you can order food to your door from your smartphone without ever having any form of interaction with a human and people supposedly love this and they do you know that's it's a very popular thing to do but you didn't really sign up in that case to to suddenly realize that you'd gone through the last few hours not making a single contact with a human being. And if you aggregate that through the day and the week and a life, that's that's a lot of kind of incidental social contact that actually does, it's been shown, you know, over and over, make a really big difference to our happiness and well-being, probably a little bit more for stay-at-home writers like, you know, people like me who would otherwise maybe not have any communication with a human for hours on end. It's good to be able to like, you know, go and buy a coffee from a real human being. So I think that, you know, there are many other examples. The smoother life gets because of all these apps that enable us to not have to interact with people, to not have to put any effort into certain things. Yeah, there's there's savings, but there's a loss as well. So it's worth just kind of being aware of that before you jump on board with absolutely everything that is suggested to you by a by a company that has a commercial interest in you in you signing up to it yeah and when don't they uh, that's right so for, it's the enlightened readers have already learned via your book about the art of creative neglect can you enlighten the listeners as to the art of creative neglect coupled with if you don't mind um how about uh the wonderful concept of paying yourself first when it comes to super units that you must treasure and consider priceless in your life that perhaps you don't at the moment yeah, totally. I mean, what I mean by the art of creative neglect is that if you start from this premise, which I, which is mine and which I think is right, that there are more things that you could meaningfully do in your life than you'll ever actually have the time to do, then by definition, you know, being a good manager of your time and a skillful user of your life is a matter of deciding what you're going to neglect and what you're going to not do. So I think there's all sorts of, you know, there's more sort of specific tips and techniques in the book, but there's more there's this idea of, um, you know, deciding in advance that some particular domain of life, keeping a really tidy, clean house, for example, is just not going to be one <laughs> that you're going to succeed at in the next six months or something so that you can focus on something else. I think making that kind of upfront decision about what you're going to neglect can be really empowering because then you're not sort of constantly struggling and dismaying and disappointing yourself when you realize that you actually do have limited time. The idea of paying yourself first as a way to really make progress on the stuff that matters to you the most. Uh, this comes from a creativity coach called Jessica Abel. And, you know, she points out it, it comes from personal finances, right? When you get paid, you should put some into savings right away. Because if you wait till the end of the month and hope that you're just going to have some left or the end of the week, you hope you're going to have some left after spending on all this stuff, you're going to be disappointed. If you if you put some away first, you probably won't miss it. And she makes the same point with time. If there's something you really care about, a project, a creative thing you're trying to do, hobby, a relationship that matters to you, you've just got to make time for it like today, a little bit of time today or this week, instead of this notion that first I'm going to get through all this other stuff that's that's uh, hanging over me, get through all my other obligations and responsibilities, and then I'll have time. 
because time doesn't work like that because the obligations and responsibilities parkinson's law you know just expand to fill the time available so it's just a question of doing a little bit of the thing that you really care about and sort of dealing with the discomfort that that tends to give rise to because you know that there's all that other stuff everything you say is, is so wonderfully um uh, distilled for us um and you know the problem with whim is you know you we love we love to do things you know on a whim we love to have the luxury and um uh the sort of depth of past endeavor to give ourselves the the freedom of doing things on a whim but you know, doing things on a whim is like letting a dog off the leash that you haven't trained first. You know, if you do things, if you let whim off the leash, it will run riot, you know, and you'll spend the rest of, 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 of your day, if not week, trying to get your whim dog back in the kennel. Whereas if you pay yourself first and, you know, they have that thing, don't they, where you make automated payments to certain investments that will be beneficial to you later. Because if you if you just if it just comes out of your bank account on payday, it's in there, it's done, and you're left with what you're left with, and and whim away, but not first and foremost. <laughs> Don't put the whim yeah. horse, no, the whim cart before the before the uh, the, the the pay pay yourself first horse. <laughs> if you like yeah exactly i don't think it was put any better than that by the ancient greek philosophers who 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 came who sort of saw this themselves early on you know centuries ago that there's sort of two ways in which we want to do there's two senses in which we want to do things there's like the sense in which you you want to i don't know write a novel you want to redesign your house you you have sort of big goals for life. And then there's what you want to do minute to minute, which is much more likely to be not doing those, those big projects or those important, meaningful things. And you have to, yeah, if you just give way to that sort of lower level of wanting it, they said, and I think it's right, it's almost a form of enslavement. It's not, it's not really being in control of life. It's just sort of giving into impulse. I mean, it's got a role in life. I don't want to be a total uh, buzzkill here, but I think it's really important to see that if you're just guided by that, then you're actually not going to get around to the things that you yourself um, value value the most. Yeah. yeah, but you're not a buzzkill because the point, you know, and I've lived, believe me, as you may be aware of it or not, I don't know, <laughs> but I've lived a buzzkill life and it was fun for a while. But, you know, there, there is that thing about, about you know, sowing the seed, um, making sure the sun shines on the right part of the garden and, and, and getting your watering can out every night. And boy, oh boy, do those uh, mighty oaks come in um, into their own later. Um, towards the end of the book, you, you do give us a little list of redemption here redemption and relief um you know uh, I d you know it's it's not that the book hangs on the conclusion the afterword beyond hope and the 10 lessons that you give as appendix 10 tools for embracing your finitude and the finitude is the word that crops up a lot both in your book and interviews that you've done as a consequence of your book um what did you, what have you learned talking about your own book because it's one thing to to think you want to read a book that doesn't exist it's another one to undertake potentially writing it and then getting a deal and actually writing it and then it's something else to contemplate what you've written in conversations like this what are your reflections on your own timepiece to do with time and how to use it uh, to me anyway that is such an interesting question i mean i think that one of the funny things about a conversation like this is that I am sort of dispensing advice. And I think, you know, I think it's good advice. I wouldn't be dispensing it otherwise. But um, but it sort of Im almost implies that you're in a position of 
myself of sort of having sorted it all out and living moment to moment in a state of wonderful serenity and never feeling overwhelmed or getting stressed about things. Um, it, you know, in which case you should probably have my wife on to do an interview if you want to find the, the <laughs> she's, truth about she's that. Very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but but what was the really interesting experience about writing the book was actually I sort of had to change in this beneficial direction in order to finish the book. It wasn't that I first had these ideas sorting my life out. And now I'm going to let everybody else learn from my wisdom. It's like it's just a constant process, and so is talking about it. It's a constant process of like remembering and deepening this perspective of like, oh yeah, there is limited time. I do have to make choices. I'm not going to get through everything. I'm not going to get to the end of the day and be like, I'm completely in control of everything and my life is finally in working order. And I think I get better at it. It gets more natural. I probably spend less hours at a time feeling like super anxious about whether I'm going to get through 200 emails in the next yeah. 24 hours. But, but it is definitely a process. You have to keep relearning it. And because this book is all about embracing your limits. And if I said I was if any of I thought anybody could be perfect at embracing their limits, it would sort of be self-contradictory. I think I think we're limited even in our ability to embrace our limitations. If, if Your makes, book uh, made me feel yeah. so less anxious yesterday when I was reading it. It really did. And I'm not saying that because you're on. You know, and I've, I've been looking at anxiety a lot recently purely because I can now sense it and recognize it. Whereas before, I think I was permanently anxious, but because I was never not anxious, I didn't know I was in the first place. Now, because sometimes I'm not, I know when I am. Um, <laughs> and, and our mutual friend, Ryan Holiday, you know, he talks about anxiety and he talks about fear and being scared. And he says, it's, it's not all right to live in fear, but it's okay to be scared and have pangs and little shudders of fear as long as that's not the umbrella under which you shelter. And I think it's the same with time. Yeah, I think definitely the anxiety that's prompted by time. What all this is about, I think, when especially when you mentioned Ryan's work there, it's about sort of admitting these feelings uh, into your world. You know, it's about being okay hanging out with them, but not having your behavior completely dictated by them. There's another sort of analogy, image, whatever, from Elizabeth Gilbert, who writes about creativity and stuff, who says, like, you know, it's like fear is going to be there for the road trip, but you don't need to let him take the driver's seat, you know, he'd be in the back seat and he can stay in the back seat for the rest of whatever, you know, there are all these just these different ways of, of dramatizing it. But like, there's no point in telling yourself that you're only going to move forward with things when you really feel in control and like, you know, exactly what you're doing. And by the way, all the other people who are having great success in life, while you're waiting for that moment, they don't know what they're doing. They're just they're just more willing to um, push forward, despite the fact that they don't know what they're doing. So I think it's really useful for any of us who sort of have a kind of a perfectionist tendency or a tendency to beat ourselves up for feeling like we need more qualifications before we can do something or that we're not certain kinds of life goals are for other people, not for us. It's often just that, um, you know, you hear your own internal monologues of self-doubt. You don't hear anyone else's, but that's just because you're not inside their heads. Completely correct. I mean, you can almost imagine what they're saying because it's probably pretty similar across the board because we're all human beings. So um, I can't remember where it is in the book, to be honest, but um, you say something, you speak to us having a, an idea, a selfless idea, you know, a moment of kindness and yet putting it off. So we have kindness on the back burner, which makes us feel better. But really, we should just get on and do it like instantly, like that second. I'm still so working on this, but this comes from an American meditation teacher called Joseph Goldstein, who says that what he tries to cultivate is this idea, like if a generous thought arises, try to act on it 
right away there and then. So it might be a you know making a donation to a certain charity or getting in touch with someone to say that you really appreciate what they did for you or, or anything like that. I think one thing we do a lot is we think, oh, that would be nice to do. I'll do that when I've finished all these other emails and paid these bills. Or even you think like, okay, that would be nice to do. But in a few months time, I'm going to have made some changes in my life that make me into the kind of person who's always doing that, who like is is so recognizes his friends and gives money to charity or when it, in a very sort of organized way and all this stuff. But if you put things off until you become the kind of person who does that kind of thing, like you're never going to actually do it. So this this practice that Joseph Goldstein talks about is just, you know, just try to act there and then on that one impulse. Uh, if it's a if it's a kind impulse, tell that person you but like their you you like what they some favor that they did or tell them that you love them or tell, or give a little bit of money to the charity that that sort of grabbed your heartstrings just just do it that once do it now. don't do this thing yeah. yeah don't do this thing where you're waiting for some time when you're going to be the kind of person who's really good at doing that sort of thing yeah, make you know? it a habit make it a habit get into it um there's a lovely story about i can't remember who, who wrote it or thought it and then wrote it down about you know if, if somebody said if they were given um you know a certain amount of time to live say the doctor said you have a year left to live what they might do if they were in a certain frame of mind is go and join as many boring queues as possible because when you're queuing up everything seems to take forever. And if you've only been given a year left to live, you want it to last forever. But of course, you talk in your book about, you know, quality time isn't about having... It's, there's no point in having more time if it feels longer. Because even though we want longer, we, we, we don't want it to feel longer. And what we actually want time to feel like is we want it to feel deeper. And if it's deeper... You know, it doesn't have a left or a right wing, if you like, or a north or south or east and the west, because we're just in it. We're in the moment. So it's all, you know, I talk about having a bath instead of a shower and reading a book by candlelight as opposed to to uh, to, to, to to room lights or whatever it may be, because you can because time doesn't pass and we pass through time. Time is still, which is, you know, another sort of myth that people can't get their head around. So it's up to us how quickly we pass through these these marker posts called time and how deep we want to go. Do you have any tips for us where that's concerned? I think that is absolutely the core of this. I think we just got about as deep as my brain can go at this time on a on a Tuesday morning. It was, I mean, that time is still, right? That in the moment of it, you're just in the moment of it. There is this other level to time or other side of time, which is how you remember it and how it, how long it feels like it took to pass. And that's this terribly depressing thing where as soon as you're like about 25, every year it seems like time is speeding up and you're sort of running out faster. And by the time you're like several decades past 25, it really is extraordinary how fast a week or a month or even a year can, can go by. But these things work together because the more you can let yourself just be in the moment and pay attention to what's happening to you, whether or not it's something extraordinary, it might just be something pleasant and enjoyable, but very mundane that you end up your brain ends up taking in more data from it. And that is the thing that makes time feel longer in the good sense. Right. In the in the in the sense of um, in the sense of it not speeding up in this terrifying way as you. Uh, age and anyone knows this from like travel if you go somewhere for a week you're taking in so much new information that it feels like it took a long time whereas an a week in your ordinary life where you don't travel feels like it went by in the in the blink of an eye so the way to get a bit more of this in your day-to-day -day life I think is just to like yeah try to just be a bit more where you are um, and 
feel the physical feelings and see the things you can see and hear the sounds you can hear not in a hugely stressful like i will now be a zen master kind of way but just to sort of fall back into the reality that you're you're actually in anyway <laughs> whether you whether you like it or not what a fascinating fascinating book. It's called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman, who we're talking to now. He's written two other books called The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, which I love the sound of, and Help How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done, which is also fascinating. So I'm going to be ordering those two books right off the back of the show today at 10 o'clock, and I promise I'm not just saying that, that's, that I'm going to do that. Um, Oliver, before you go, uh, New York's loss is Yorkshire's gain. What's happened? <laughs> About a week ago, I relocated with my uh, family, at least for the next year. It's not clear after that, but to um, to the North York Moors. So I'm, uh, yeah, it's it's a big. Uh, I come from roughly this area, but um, it's a still it's a big uh, it's a big difference from Brooklyn. Because you, you accidentally ended up becoming a a permanent resident of Brooklyn. So you went there, you went there on a whim, I suppose it may have been a whim, um, and you slipped into a permanent lifestyle there, which you really embraced and enjoyed. So um, if it's not too personal, how how come you've moved back? Uh, oh, we've. Uh, my wife is an academic, and she has a sabbatical, so she has the opportunity to not be at her New York. Uh, university employment for a year and um our son is four turning five it seems like a good year at, to come and do this um and i suppose i should if i've written a book which includes sections on how you know uh going on hikes and being in in nature is an important part of my priority for using my time i should actually at some point you've got to do that as, as well so um i'm i'm hoping i'm uh, walking the the talk as well uh, yeah. so you know all comes together living it as well as giving it is what we say here yeah. um, <laughs> and how does time feel in yorkshire compared to manhattan or brooklyn it's a really interesting point i can already feel the ways in which i'm still out of sync with this uh area you know i can still i can still feel in this very rural area part of your of north yorkshire where we're where we're living now like the the desire to start the the drive to school 10 minutes earlier than it really needs to be started and all that kind of that kind of trying to just get on top of time a little bit more it, it becomes much more evident what i was doing all the time anyway in in brooklyn so we'll we'll see it'll be an interesting uh, it'll be an interesting experience see if i can uh, can like you know uh, enter the the rhythm of where i actually am instead of somewhere i am in my head well you've just got to surrender to that haven't you because that's there <laughs> isn't it it will overwhelm you and it will get you in the end anyway won't it I, I really hope so. And yeah, I think being in this particular environment, that's the that's the way to take on board the characteristics of it, because you ultimately, yeah, as you say, you can't really resist the place you're in, uh, I don't think, very easily, where, wherever you happen to be. And um, what's the weather like? Right now, it's not raining, but apparently it's going to in about an hour yeah, and carry on but until midnight. tomorrow there's going to be a heatwave. <laughs> Seriously? I look forward to it. It's be a heatwave. <laughs> Have, have it with, with my pleasure with my love uh, thanks to you book Oliver you're a superstar thanks for your time uh, 4,000 weeks time and how to use it you're always welcome on this show cheers all thank you so much it's been a pleasure the best of the Chris Evans breakfast show with Sky Virgin Radio and so there we are wasn't that fascinating the brilliantly eloquent Oliver Berkman his book 4,000 weeks time and how to use it is out now I highly recommend you get that in your reading juice cabinet thank you for downloading this special extra edition of the best of the breakfast show with Sky and if you haven't already you can subscribe for free to get our best bits every week 